Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. I think we're going to look back at the introduction of generative AI in healthcare as a huge milestone, as big as the introduction of penicillin. So generative AI and these tools uh, applied to our healthcare data are gonna revolutionize the way that we deliver healthcare. Thanks for joining us on this keynote episode, a This Week Health conference show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our keynote show partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. The title for this is Healthcare's AI Journey, Challenges and Opportunities. I want to thank everybody who's a part of this. I want to thank our panelists, obviously. I want to thank our listeners and participants. We received, uh, this is probably a record. I think we received close to a hundred and some odd questions from participants coming in. If you want to ask additional questions, feel free to throw those into the chat. We will collect those. But I have a feeling you'll find that a lot of the questions have been asked ahead of time and we're going to uh, delve into those. If you uh, are wondering what our panel is for next month, we have a great panel. We're gonna talk interoperability and we're specifically gonna hone in on outcomes and where we're going with this. We have uh, Mickey Tripathi with the ONC joining us, Anish Chopra, who I'll just term as an interoperability evangelist, and then Marian Yeager, who is the CEO of the Sequoia Project. So that's next month. It'll be the first Thursday of the month at one o'clock Eastern time. And again, we have three great panelists for today and we're gonna get kicked off. Mike Pfeffer, CIO for Stanford, Brent Lamb, CIO for UNC, and Chris Longhurst, CMO and CDO for UC San Diego. I'm gonna kick us off. We'll just go around. I'd like to get a little background from each of you. But I, I wanna start with a very high level question, which is the promise of AI. How is your organization framing up the AI discussion and how is that uh, impacting your approach to the use of AI at your institution? And I'm going to stay in the same order. Eventually, I'll switch it up. But Mike, I'll start with you. What does Stanford see as the promise of AI and how are you framing up that discussion at your system? Thanks, Bill. Uh, so incredibly exciting, I think is how I would summarize it. We've spent years really fine-tuning the process of moving from the analog world to the to digitizing what we've had. And, and now I think we're really seeing the opportunity to take it to the real digital world where everything's really helping people do incredible things with the technologies we have. So I, I would just say lots of excitement. And then how we're thinking about this, we have a, a chief data scientist role that that actually reports into the IT organization to really lead this process for us. We have a governance structure. We have our patient advisory councils becoming involved and thinking about it in two kind of large buckets. We're thinking about automation and we're thinking about augmentation. And so automation, I think, is where we're going to see the initial value. And that's really where we're taking like large language models and other kinds of AI to really automate, hence the term, uh, a process that someone can do now. So for example, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, drafting in basket uh, messages uh, from patient messages, right? Well, a clinician can write a message. So that's a, an example of, of AI automating it. The augmentation part would be something more like around precision medicine, where you're really taking data and the clinician decision-making, putting it together and doing something that you couldn't do without AI and the clinician together that's a lot harder. And I think we're, we're starting to dive into use cases around that. Fantastic. Uh, Brent, what's, uh, what's going on at UNC? How are you guys viewing AI and how is the discussion moving forward? Yeah, I think, I think when you distill it down, I think it's not very different than what Michael just described at, at his organization. I think we're the promise of AI is the way you frame that. And I'm thinking about that. And I think so much of this is about how our 
providers and teammates and patients are viewing it and will view it in the future. And so we're really trying to approach it and message it from that perspective of we think AI is a tool that can help our providers and our teammates and our patients be more productive and more effective at delivering care and engaging in their care as patients. And that it is the augmentation word, Michael said, is absolutely front and center for us. It's, it's about as a tool that we think will manifest in many different ways and different use cases to help move the needle in terms of efficiency, quality, engagement at the patient level, and ideally, hopefully, in the end, improved health and wellness. We do have an organizational view that this will be ultimately a game-changing technology. We do not think this is going to go backwards. We're going to go through some typical Gartner hype cycle, I'm sure, and those kind of things, but we really see this as a long-term game-changer. Chris, I'm going to come to you. I mean, can this even be measured on the Gartner hype cycle at this point? Uh, that's a great question. I, I agree with Brent that we're going to see a, a hype cycle here, but it may be a slightly different curve than we've seen before. Um, UC San Diego is very similar to the organizations you just heard about. We're, we're really leaning in. We're very bullish on the opportunities. I'd say two things have come together that make this uh, a particularly exciting time. One was the release of uh, large language models last fall. That's a real game changer. We, we've had AI committees stood up for four or five years. Everything with machine learning that goes into our system is evaluated for equity, for ethics, and patient impact. But uh, the release of these large language models is particularly interesting when our own analysis suggests that about 99% of our clinical record by volume is unstructured data. And so the opportunity to use all of this text data to drive better outcomes, better decision support suddenly becomes insight. The second thing that happened at San Diego was a very generous gift from Joan and Erwin Jacobs last fall that uh, funded our Center for Health Innovation to the tune of $20 million. And a big focus of our center is on AI use in healthcare and patient care. And for me, this is really particularly exciting because, you know, frankly, when you talk about the promise of AI, a lot of it's just hype and speculation right now. We don't have clear outcomes yet. It's not a proven sort of technology in terms of how it's going to uh, benefit workflows, benefit clinicians, and benefit the patients we serve. And so, frankly, a lot of this needs research. It needs outcomes analysis. It's an experiment. And what this generous donation allows for us at San Diego is to fund those type of outcome studies and research efforts that would be difficult to fund with operational margins otherwise, particularly in the current financial environment. Yeah, and that is going to be so necessary as we move forward. Let me give you an idea of the questions that came in. I, I put them into categories. Use cases far and away, the largest group of questions that came in as a category are ROIs, another uh, culture, uh, changing the culture and adoption being another governance was another large category. Futures, people are, are wondering what you think it might look like in, in five years or so. There's a whole category around planning, risks and challenges, policy, architecture, uh, patients' direct use of this technology to interact for their care, essentially. And then there's validation, which you just mentioned a little bit. And then there's a, another category that I'm just calling other. So let's get right into current use cases. So we, we've read some papers, we've read some studies, we have heard that these large language models can be more empathetic and in some cases more accurate and, and whatnot. Chris, I'm gonna to come to you to start this since your name and, and your institution's name has been attached to some of this stuff. Where is UCSD testing this technology and, and, and what are you finding? What are you, what are you learning? Sure. Well, it's a really interesting story, and it's an evolving story, of course. So remember, ChatGPT was released late November of last year, and one of my colleagues on faculty at UC San Diego, Dr. John Ayers, had the really brilliant idea in December to take publicly posted patient comments on a social media forum and run them through GPT and then compare them to responses of validated physicians that were posting on this website. And I got to participate in that study. I was actually one of the seven reviewers blinded to the source of the responses and ranking them, rating them. 
And of course, the headlines that came out when the study was published in April was just what you said, that the chatbot is higher quality and more empathetic than doctors. And it was sort of an unfortunate interpretation of the outcomes, because the way I actually interpreted that was that in a, a given amount of time, and many physicians are time limited, right? The chatbot could create longer and apparently higher quality responses than a physician in that same period of time, right? And it also generated artificial but apparent empathy. Now, if you ask patients what they think of robotic empathy, which some companies have done, it actually is very creepy to patients. But what this study did is it really motivated us to talk to our EHR vendor partners about how we might use this technology to help draft responses for our doctors, because this has been a longstanding issue. Remember last fall, the other thing that was in the news was many different health systems charging patients to send message to their doctors as a way of disincentivizing what has really become a tsunami of patient messages since the pandemic and, and virtual care took off. And so putting this all together with our vendor partner, we actually were one of the first sites to enable this functionality, turned it on in mid-April, ironically, before that paper was actually published. And the outcomes have been really interesting. We, we ran it for a couple months on GPT-3.5, uh, all sorts of feedback from our physicians about the need to do prompt engineering uh, to make the responses better and more useful. In general, we are finding that our primary care doctors are finding this more helpful than some of our specialists, which isn't terribly surprising when you think about the corpus that GPT and these large language models have been trained on. And then most recently, we completed a eight-week crossover trial where we actually randomized physicians who are interested in participating to either be in the early group or the late adoption group. And then we compared their responses. And we just shared this data for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we're submitting it now for peer review. But the, the spoiler alert is that the physicians using the GPT response saved on average about 10 seconds per message. But what was really interesting is that their messages were almost twice as long. And so if you believe sort of our earlier study from April that those longer messages are likely higher quality, then potentially we're sending higher quality messages to our patients and we're doing it more quickly because those 10 seconds accrued across tens of thousands of patient messages on a daily basis, they add up to real time. My, my final comment on this is something I'm really proud of, the, the AI committee that I mentioned, co-chaired by Dr. Amy Sidipati, our uh, chief of biomedical informatics and CMIO for population health, wanted to make sure that we are transparent with our patients. And so although every single message is reviewed by a physician and edited as needed before being sent, we actually have put a disclaimer in the message so that we're completely transparent with our patients. It says, this message was generated automatically and reviewed by your clinician, and that doctor's name goes in there. And we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from patients who like the fact that their doctors are getting this help. So it's been an interesting learning experience and more to come for sure. Yeah, so Brent and, and Mike, I, I think both institutions are participating in the notes trial. You're both doing a, a trial on notes. What's the clinician feedback? I mean, are they excited about it? Are they struggling with it a little bit? How did you introduce it to them and how are they responding? Michael probably will have a better, broader response, but I, I want to build on something Chris just mentioned, if I could, which is the feedback. I, literally this weekend, I had a chance to look through a lot of feedback from our pilot group of physicians that are using it. Now, we're a little bit, a few months behind where Chris and, and Michael's teams are, but we're live now and have it in use for our pilot group of physicians for a number of weeks. And what was interesting to me, and I don't, I should have maybe, and maybe others would have foreseen this, but as the technology has gotten so much better just in the last month, and it seems like week by week, it's getting better and better with the prompt engineering behind the scenes that's going on with the vendors and in our other peer institutions. What I'm getting now is, oh, wow, this is an excellent response, but it doesn't sound like me and I'm going to change it. And so I didn't think about that. And, and it's almost like it's, I don't want to say too empathetic because our physicians are, are, are wonderful caregivers and they want to provide a great response to the patient, of course. But I think they're worried about what I would say being genuine, if that makes sense. And I think, Chris, it goes to his point around the disclaimer kind of model or mentality. But our physicians are going, wow, that sounds really good, but I need to change that because it's not my voice coming through. Yeah, and, and and Mike, what are you hearing? 
a lot of the same things. I mean, when we launched this, similar to what Chris was saying, I mean, the, the responses were very lacking with the original GPT 3.5 and the initial prompting that went into it. And through a ton of learning on how you prompt these models and then moving to, to GPT 4.0, we, we start to see significant improvement in the responses. And we've also included not just physicians, but pharmacists and nurses in, in the pilot to really mimic what typical workflows are for patient messages. And again, seeing a lot of the same things works better for primary care than specialty. And actually we're seeing that the pharmacists and the nurses actually find more value from it than the clinicians. And so probably part of that, you know, to Brent's point, it doesn't necessarily sound like them. And probably a lot of the messages that are being handled upfront by pharmacists and nurses are a little, a little bit more routine and less, say, empathetic needed, so to speak. I'm refilling your medicine or that this or that, or this is some things you want to look out for when you're taking that medicine. So we're learning a ton here. I think what's really exciting is as these, as the technology continues to improve and recently uh, a, a version of GPT 3.5 that can be instruction tuned is launched. And that's really different than prompt engineering that the model, you can actually train it. Um, it's going to be very exciting to see, can we get better um, responses for our specialists? And can we begin to incorporate, to Brent's point, a little bit more of the personal touch? So think of it this way. You, you have a limited amount that you can prompt. You, you can't send the entire medical record into the model to prompt. So if you could tune the model so it really understands your environment and how to answer these messages correctly, but then you can prompt a lot more specific about the provider answering the question, I think we're going to see even more adoption. So it's just really exciting. This is going to keep, we're going to keep learning. The technology is going to get better and better. It's going to become more personalized. And uh, I, I think it's going to provide value. It, we are just on the front end of this. I mean, it really was Thanksgiving last year. All of a sudden people were talking about, oh my gosh, have you used, and this is probably the quickest I've ever seen healthcare adopt any kind of new technology, it's, it's really fascinating. But anybody who's used ChatGPT or any of the other large language models knows how important it is to ask the right question and to have it educated on certain things. We've all gotten that prompt back that essentially says, hey, I'm sorry, I only know things up to 2021, whatever that date is. And to realize that the, the data going in and how it's trained is so important in terms of the value you're getting back. And then the, the prompts become so important. I'm gonna skip my framework, go into some of the questions we have here. Beyond the basket, beyond the auto-generated messages, what are other use cases that you are tracking for increasing efficiencies using AI models? Brent, let, let's start with you. Yeah. One of the things this probably is in the uh, category of maybe a smaller use case, but we're really focused on as we've rolled out our electronic health record system across our hospitals and practices across North Carolina and through the pandemic and post-pandemic period, we've obviously, like I think most other health systems, have had a tremendous amount of turnover at times as, as we've all struggled with healthcare staffing. And one of the challenges that we hear all the time is just helping people, helping our teammates, care team members on the front lines have more and easier access to training materials and how-to information. And so we're working to embed, we've got it in a prototype model now, where we're going to allow our care team members while they're in our electronic health record system to be able to get help using generative AI type prompts, returning back cited documents or training materials, tip sheets, and then be able to escalate that to a problem ticket if there's a point in time where that's a problem. I know other organizations have done a lot of work around this as we have around trying to make that getting help easier for care team members. And we're trying to move that more to the front end of the process to say, it's not just about, hey, I got a problem. I need someone to call me. It's also, how can I get that information in real time? How do I document this? How do I do that? that that's one of the 
I, I would say smaller use cases that we're looking at. I think like us, like many organizations are also looking at a lot of things in the revenue cycle. For example, prior authorizations, how we can potentially leverage generative AI to help make that a more streamlined and automated process. We've got a vendor partner we're working with on that has shown some early success relative to trying to, to, to make that a more efficient process. And I think to the previous conversation, the current generative AI responses that our physicians are doing in these pilots are going back to patients. And we've talked about that issue of the voice coming through, being genuine, those kind of things. There's a whole lot of documentation in the broader electronic health record ecosystem around patient care that doesn't have that problem and might be lower hanging fruit, if you will, for generative AI technologies. I know there's a lot going on, as we all know right now, around ambient listening and turning that into a draft note for a clinician, things like that. I think those are going to be relatively quick second phase to a lot of this in healthcare. Fantastic. Mike? Yeah, I would echo what Brent's saying, uh, agree with all of that. Uh, you, again, when we think about opportunities to automate in healthcare, I, I think robotic process automation has reached its limits. And now I think we're at a whole new category of ability to automate. Like I'd love to see the rev cycle fully automated for clinicians. Why should clinicians need to code, bill, answer queries, things like that? All this stuff I think there's such an opportunity to automate documentation in general and to echo Brent, everything from ambient voice to asking questions of the material, summarizing material. If you're thinking about consultant workflows and e-consults, being able to generate a summary that could speed things up for providers, discharge summary, uh, summarization. There's so much potential opportunity. And again, that's not necessarily on the patient facing side, right? This is for the clinicians and automating different avenues. So I would agree with all of that. I think we have to start diving into how do we look at outcomes and using these models for patient care, but that's going to be, I think, much harder as, as Chris saying, we have to study this. We have to understand how these models are going to work in, in clinical care. And our initial kind of thinking on this is the models are going to have to be trained to really understand how clinicians think. And we, there's actually a recent article published looking, basically creating a list of clinician asked and instructions that you could use and begin to use to train both, both the questions and the answers to start to really figure out how to train these models. So I, I think the models are going to get more specific, probably even smaller than the large GPT models to really start to dive into that clinical decision-making aspect. And that has to be studied at length. But again, thinking about all the possible ways of automating tasks, I think is where you're going to see significant opportunity. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. Our monthly leader series webinars has been a huge success. We had close to 300 people sign up for our September webinar, and we are at it again in October. We are going to talk about interoperability from a possibility standpoint. We talk a lot about what you need to do and that kind of stuff. This time we're going to talk about, hey, what's the future look like in a world where interoperability, where data, where information flows freely? And we're going to do that on October 5th at 1 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Pacific time. We're going to talk about solutions. We're going to share experiences. We're going to talk about patient-centric care and see what we can find out. We have three great leaders on this webinar, Mickey Tripathi with the ONC. Marianne Yeager, Sequoia Project, and Anish Chopra, who I'm just going to call an interoperability evangelist, which is what he has been to me ever since I met him about 10 years ago. Don't miss this one. Register today at thisweekhealth.com. Now, back to our show. We were, I think all of us were at UGM recently. I got an invite. It's my first one ever going. Not to offend anyone, but my highlight was listening to Sachin Nadala, CEO of Microsoft, talk about this. And he introduced this concept of the dream machine, right? And, and Chris, you sort of teed it up. We have all this unstructured data just strewn. Of, I don't want to make it sound like it's all over the place, but it is all over the place. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere within healthcare. And he talked about the dream machine. And he said, but it's something that can take natural language input 
And this is what we've experienced with GPT. We can just ask it. It's like, hey, give me a diet that I can follow and that kind of stuff. And it responds, right? So natural language in. The next thing he said is it has a reasoning engine. And that's what we're experiencing from computers for the first time. It used to be like we had to go in and find things and we were the reasoning engine, but now it's reasoning and giving us feedback. But the third thing that he pointed out, and I thought it was one of the one of the most important points was the the design concept around the implementation of this is one of a co-pilot, not a pilot. And he talked a little bit about we feel comfortable if the computer's coming alongside to help us. We don't feel so comfortable when we hear things like automated driving, where the car is driving itself or the plane is flying itself or that kind of stuff. We like the concept of, hey, there's still somebody with their hands on the on the on the wheel. Um, Chris, I, I want to come to you to close out that question of use cases. How are you exploring new use cases and, and what are you looking at? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say that while well, the the pilot that we've been performing on draft messages for patient questions is interesting and we're learning a lot, I actually don't think it's even going to be the best example of a use case of large language models. Uh, some of what uh, Mike and Brent mentioned, I think, are going to be really more impactful in some ways. So things such as revenue cycle automation. I mean, we've got a, a large team, as does every health system, doing coding of our charts and we can probably make them more efficient and reallocate them uh, to higher value roles in the health system if uh, large language models are taking the first pass and they're validating, much like uh, years ago voice recognition did for transcriptionists, right? The executive chart summaries for our ED physician and specialists, I think, are going to be hugely impactful. And we're seeing our clinicians today using tools to help draft letters to insurance companies about authorization review and denials and things of that nature. So there's clearly a lot of promise and we can all agree on that. I would say a note of caution. What we don't want to do is get an escalating war of AI. So while it's great, there's tools that can help draft physician letters to insurance companies about denials. What are the insurance companies now doing? Well, they're taking all those letters and they're running them through AI, right? And so it's a bit of a, a war of attrition. And similarly, there's no doubt one of the most common requests we're hearing is for AI scribes. Can I get a microphone that listens and helps to helps me to document? And there's lots of data that's a source of burnout. The amount of time a physician spends answering patient questions in the electronic health record on a daily basis versus the amount of time an outpatient doctor spends actually writing notes, it's night and day. It's all spent on the note writing. And so the, the AI scribes are, are really um, promising. On the other hand, we also know that a lot of what goes in notes is useless. We're documenting it for compliance or regulatory or perfunctory kind of reasons, right? And so I'd rather see an effort that reduces what needs to be documented for billing purposes rather than an AI that makes long notes that are compliant with all these uh, regulatory requirements. And so we just have to balance how we're using it in smart ways so that we're not just generating a bunch of garbage text that really is not useful for patient care and actually adds to the overhead in the system rather than making it more efficient. So we have a ton of questions. Rather than ask questions and have all three of you respond, I think what I'm going to start doing is picking a question, picking a person, have you answer that question and moving on to the next one. If you guys want to add to whatever the person who I choose to answer the question, feel free to. Brent, I'm going to start with you. This is more of a technical question. As we start down the road of implementing AI, what does it look like? Are we going to end up with 20 large language models around? Are we going to buy all these solutions from these various vendors and they're all going to implement a large language model or how are we thinking about it from a, from a, I was going to say an architecture standpoint, but just, yeah. you know what I mean? From an IT standpoint, yeah. how are you going to make this manageable long-term? So I, I may not be answering your question, sweet spot, Bill, as asked, but, but we have spent a lot of time lately thinking about the following. I think every health IT vendor out there now has an AI component to their solutions. And I, I'm sure many of those are fantastic. I Some I, I question at times when I see uh, a slideshow or presentation uh, about it. What I think we're seeing right now is all this siloed one-off. Everybody's baking AI into their existing solutions that are working in a space and they're incrementally enhancing that solution to add some additional value. So that's good. 
but I actually think what we're going to find, and I'm I'm really curious what what Michael and Chris think, but I think we're going to find that the real value is going to be unlocked once we stop looking at these silos of data and looking at these siloed solutions and really focus on bringing all the data together. We've got, for example, we've got a collaboration that we've started with the American Heart Association where we're trying to, I guess the Invogue term right now is multimodal AI we're beginning to bring together AI that's analyzing images from our legacy images from our patients and the electronic health record data to begin to correlate those together, looking for undetected, undiagnosed cardiovascular disease and to try to drive, obviously, preventative measures or intervene uh, early uh, in those patients' cases. And so I think we're going to see more and more of these data come together, claims, traditional electronic health record data, social determinants of health. I think bringing all the data or as much of it together and analyzing it in just like the human physician or human clinician does in the broader array or broader context is where the value is going to ultimately be truly unlocked. So let's stay in this area of value and ROI. There, there's a couple of questions here that how are we going to measure the ROI on these models and ensure that they're delivering value? I think there's an assumption that they're going to deliver value. Actually, Chris, I think I'm going to come to you for this one because you mentioned 10 seconds per message. So it sounds like you have some metrics you're looking at and working with. Yeah, and I want to credit Dr. Ming-Tai Seal and Marlene Millen, our CMIO and um, outcomes lead, who really led this effort. As I mentioned, it's being submitted for peer-reviewed and publication, but we took a rigorous approach to outcomes measurement, and that's really something that we try to do as a learning health system with a lot of quality improvement projects. Brent mentioned this earlier. These tools are really mind-blowing, but they're still just tools. And so we have to think about first principles. What is it we're trying to accomplish? We're trying to reduce the amount of time physicians spend in the chart answering patient questions. Well, let's measure that then. So I don't think we need new metrics for the ROI on these tools. I think we need to apply these tools to existing problems and challenges that have formerly been intractable, right? Another good example is we're partnered with Dr. Rod Tarago and the AWS team on looking at our incident and safety reports. Hundreds of these reports are filed every day. For the most part, they're text-based reports. And our ability as a quality and safety department to identify trends is limited by the fact that they're all text. And so we're taking a pilot-based approach to trying to feed this data into a large language model, develop dashboards to help us better guide preventive and proactive me uh, measures for quality and safety purposes. And those are the kinds of outcomes that really matter to patients. It's the quality outcomes, right? Yeah, it, it, and I, I'm going to stay in this area, and I'm going to uh, come over to you, Mike, with a question on the clinicians. And there's a, a, a series of questions around uh, making the clinicians more effective, improving outcomes and those kind of things. And one of them talks about increasing visibility to healthcare studies and white papers globally. And it's, it's almost impossible for clinicians to stay up on all the current writings and whatnot but it's not impossible for machines to digest all that and make it available in the workflow. And I think that's the promise that's sort of being alluded to here. How are we, how are we doing that? How are we helping the clinicians to be more effective with these kinds of tools? That's a great question, Bill. I think we're still learning how to do that. I mean, there's an enormous amount of articles published. Of those articles published in the medical literature, how many of them are actually changing practice, right? I mean, there, there's not many that that occur each year and you're right it's i think someone published that if you tried to keep up with all the articles you'd have to read 96 hours worth of articles every day which as we know the math doesn't really line up there so there's i think significant potential for these tools to be used to mine data sets whether they be asking questions of ehr data sets great example as a company that spun out of stanford called green button and that's really using clinician informaticists to mine data and come back with that question. And Chris is smiling because he had a big role in that while he was at Stanford. But that's the early kind of way of doing this. And I think as we integrate large language models into that kind of experience, you're going to be able to ask those questions of the data set 
for the patients you're caring for. You're going to be able to, I think, get better in get her better summaries and understandings of the literature that's coming out that's relevant to what you're looking for. I, again, this is very early stage, but I think there's huge potential there. I, I do want to talk about just really quick to dovetail on Chris and Brent's talk about value ROI, how we can do this. I, I think a framework is really important. We have a, so our chief data scientist, Nigam Shah put together a framework that we use called the firm assessment, but it's really about de defining the value up front and really mapping out the five-year total cost of ownership. So really understanding what that model is going to do for you. Because if we just take models in and of itself, they make a prediction. And so what you do with that prediction really drives the value of the model. And so you need to work all the way downstream to understand how that's going to be. And it's not always going to be a money value, right? I mean, there's going to be quality. It's going to be qualitative, how, how, how we're making clinicians feel, how our patients feeling. So there's a lot that goes into determining what the value is. I will say, though, that there's no way that we can pay $5 for every prediction for hundreds and hundreds of models that we put in our system in the future. So it's not that is not sustainable. And so I really believe these things are going to become more commodity and they're going to be plugged into platforms that can handle these things, which is the right way to do it because these predictions, these models need to be part of the workflow. They can't live outside that. So that's probably where it's going to go. I can't say for certain, but you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to be buying models. I, I think we're going to be, you know, understanding value of these models. We're going to be sharing them. I think they're going to be mostly open source, and then it's going to be the platforms that can ingest them and the, the compute on the back end to make all this work. Yeah. Chris, you had a follow-up? Yeah. Well, Dr. Pfeffer, as usual, I think is really prescient in his thoughts. I, I just want to take something he mentioned and amplify it, which is, I think one of the greatest long-term opportunities here is to use these tools to help make our clinicians all maximally effective. And what I mean by that is ensuring that differential diagnoses, workup plans for patients, et cetera, are as data-driven as possible, regardless of where doctor or nurse trained, trained them or what patients they've seen in the past. And this is one of the original promises of medical informatics. Larry Weed described this in his famous 1971 papers about SOAP notes, that the idea of computerizing those notes would allow for more standard differential diagnoses. He tried software in the 1980s called the Promise System, which was a patient-reported outcomes a medical information system. And it really was this idea that when presenting with a symptom, we should be asking a standard set of questions, doing a standard physical exam, ordering standard tests. And yet still, here we are 50 years later, we don't do that. I think that these models can really become assistive. Bill, as you said, like Satya described on stage, a co-pilot to, to help our clinicians all really function at their peak. So another area that we're investigating at UC San Diego is actually how we can use these large language models to um, better educate our future doctors. So when we think about our medical students and our trainees, they're writing a lot of these notes that are uh, in the record about patients. And yet there's metadata in these notes about how the uh, medical students or trainees are thinking about their patients. And we can use that to help identify gaps and opportunities and, and train to those so that we're graduating the best possible uh, future physicians and that our, our faculty members are operating at the, the top of their competencies as well. The one thing I was going to add a little earlier was when Michael was talking about some of the ways we could see this moving, my words, moving the needle, right, for our care teams. I'm really excited about what this technology can do for our nursing workforce. We haven't, in my opinion, we could debate it, but I don't think as an industry we've talked enough about that yet. And I think it's something we need to elevate the conversation more I, you know, I have this dream that our nurses are going to walk into a patient room with a smartphone and have a smart TV on the wall. And that's the only technology devices in the room. And they're going to be able to talk to the electronic health record system. They're going to be able to display what they need to with these to patients and um, other care team members. And um, they're going to walk out. And I, I don't know, I think there's work out there that I don't 
I'm not educated on it enough to, to quote it, but I think look, measuring this concept of the time that a clinician spends in a room, we want that to be maximizing with the patient and minimizing with the computer or with the device. And I think there's a lot we could do in that space, probably not in the too far distant future with the performance of the models that we're seeing over the past few months. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because just like two days ago, I was talking with our chief nursing informatics officer, Gretchen Brown. And I was like, how can we just get a, a, a smartphone as the only device we need in the patient's room? Yeah. Because we, we we have computers in all the rooms. And, and from a sustainability standpoint, it'd be really nice not to have to keep replacing them and, and, and really create that interaction that you speak of. I, I, I'm hoping we get there. I'm hoping we get to that point. But the nursing workflows and the opportunity for virtual nursing and the, the list goes on and on, I think is really incredible and can be enabled by a lot of this. Yeah, 100% agree. We need to look at our professionals beyond the physicians and nursing is one area. I think there's a lot of paraprofessionals and other uh, clinician leaders in the organization are going to benefit from these tools as well. I'm going to ask a question that looks like was posted uh, by an anonymous attendee, which is what sort of legal, regulatory, and operational challenges are you finding a source of friction? How are you working through those? Maybe, Brent, you can go first and then Mike. I, I think the regulatory challenges, I know that there's a lot of question about where do you draw the line between these AI models and medical devices. I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation, and I hope we can find the, the right path forward to make sure that we don't over-regulate this technology while also at the same time making sure it's safe and used effectively. I think, to the earlier point, our legal department is one of our departments here that actually has been early pilot group with our internal chat GPT solution. And I, I, again, it's obvious now hindsight, but it's amazing to me how much as they've worked with this, it's one use case or test works perfectly and the next one does it. And it's because there was some minor ruling or change to the statute or law regulation and how it gets it completely wrong. So I think our, our legal team have been one of the ones where we've struggled actually finding it have real traction and value for them. I'll just add, I agree with Brent. It's having the right processes in place, I think, when you think about this. So you have a governance that looks at models before they go into production on some framework to make sure they're as safe and reliable as you can make it. Not everything's going to be perfect. We all know there's plenty of studies out there that show you can show an x-ray to five radiologists, you get seven re results, and you can do that for every specialty and every type of diagnosis. And then you, you have to monitor these things. So you need to have a process to say, okay, we're going to watch these things on a quarterly basis. We're going to run the analytics, make sure they're not drifting in a way that is going to be dangerous. But yeah, I, I do hope we don't get into uh, regulatory paralysis where we're spending an inordinate amount of time figuring out the regulations and it doesn't allow us to test these things and learn from them and really drive healthcare where we need it to be. I mean, costs keep going up. I, I'd really love for us to leverage the technologies that the, the promise of kind of health IT was really to be able to bend the cost curve and provide better care. Let us figure out how to do that in a safe way, I, I think is going to be really important. Yeah, Mike, I uh, couldn't agree more. I think this is not an area to come in with a heavy-handed regulatory approach, and I worry a bit about some of the recent guidance coming out of the FDA about treating some of these decision support algorithms as if they're medical devices. I was uh, recently down in Australia, and they have a much more regulatory-focused kind of framework for this, and it's really prevented uh, innovation at the, the local health system standpoint, and uh, you hear that from the health system leaders who wish they could deploy some of these tools to help their patients, but they're really uh, prevented by the, the regulatory burdens. There has to be a balance, though. I mean, obviously, uh, with these AI algorithms, there's potential for bias and inequities to be introduced inadvertently. And that's where I think it really becomes obligatory on us to be learning health systems, particularly the early rollout sites, to, to look at the data, ensure that we're not introducing those unintended consequences. And so just as an example, our AI committee looks at two or three different types of algorithms. One is what we would consider vendor-based AI. And so we've got tools today that we use for things like stroke prediction and evaluation of scans. 
And, and those are pretty well-described algorithms. They've gone through some level of regulatory scrutiny because the vendor is selling them, right? The second is what we consider our locally deployed algorithms using vendor tools. So for example, our EHR vendor has you know, partnered with Microsoft on cognitive compute. We can learn from our own data and, and roll out sepsis prediction tools, et cetera. To be honest, we found that a lot of those are, are not high value. In fact, we've got some uh, data coming out on the sepsis prediction, building on work that Dr. Karandeep Singh did in Michigan that uh, really shows that it, it wasn't timely enough to, to make a difference. And then we've got what you referred to, Brent, as the multimodal AI. So these are the bespoke algorithms that we're not building with vendor tools, but you know, rather with kind of uh, homegrown uh, solutions that are using commercial uh, applications. And we're finding a lot more mileage with that. We, we can actually predict sepsis um, with more accuracy and farther in advance when it actually helps us care for patients if we integrate the electronic health record data with bedside monitoring data and other data sources. The EHR data is necessary, but not sufficient because it doesn't have that high cadence of input where the bedside monitoring data is real time, but doesn't know enough about the patient to uh, really uh, help us. And so integrating the data together, we've really been able to find some new outcomes and opportunities, but we're doing the work now of the ethical and governance overhead to ensure that the algorithms that we're constructing that are bespoke are not introducing bias or um, impacting outcomes in a negative way. So that's how we're thinking about it locally. Models are local, I think. And the irony of the regulations, when new regulations come out in healthcare, we often use clinical decision support tools to help enforce them. So now you're going to regulate that. It's just, These are really important to us, and we have to have that flexibility to be able to provide clinical decision support without having to worry that everything we do has to go through some higher level approval. It will, it will shut us down, really. Yeah, Mike, there's some sort of joke in there. I just don't think it's a good one. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I, I would have run it through GPT. It might have been funnier or more empathetic. Who knows? All right. So thanks for giving me that break today. I appreciate it. The uh, internet went down at my house. I want to close with one quick question and then one question for all of you on futures. The quick question is smaller systems. So all of you are larger systems, fairly some grants, some money flowing around from other things and other sources. Um, for those who are listening in, who are with smaller health systems, is there sort of an easy button? Is there an easy on-ramp for some of these use cases or, or some of the things that they're looking at? Keeping, keeping in mind that they're clinicians, they're doctors, they're just across the board, they're already using it. Like they're just going online and typing things in. I mean, if you were to be put in that situation, how would you uh, be shepherding your organization to utilize the technology? Well, I, I would partner wherever I can. I know that a lot of our hospital systems across North Carolina that are part of the UNC Health Network and Family Now, they were in similar situations and, and, and it chose, chose to affiliate with UNC Health. And I think, I like to think we've that we've provided great value to them in terms of helping them be more quick, more quickly adopt new technologies. I think that would be something that would be front and center here with AI. I think it could drive additional partnership within the health health system community. So, so it's partner with existing health systems. It's partner with potentially your EHR yeah. provider. I think every major EHR yeah. provider is heading in this direction. Partner with your PACS providers. A lot of them are heading in this direction. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of different avenues. There's, I wouldn't call them easy buttons, but there's a lot of avenues to tap into work that's already being done, that's being informed by some of the work that you guys are doing. And very quick, Bill, this last thing I would add to that is, and I would also probably wait. I would actually wait and adopt proven solutions. I think if I was a smaller health system with, with currently the financial um, headwinds we're facing in the industry, I think there is an argument to be made for waiting and being early or quick adopters to proven solutions as they emerge. All right, two minutes each, futures. I'm going to have you project out five years. What does this mean for the clinician? What does it mean for the system? What does it mean for the patient? You can choose any one of those to really comment on. Five years from now, how will healthcare be different? And we'll go in the order we started in. Mike, we'll, we'll start with you. Thanks, Bill. This has been a lot of fun. Always wonderful to have a chance to chat with Brent and Chris. Five years from now, I, I think it's going to be completely different from what we see today. 
in every one of those categories that you spoke about. I mean, my dream is always creating an environment that's just so simple and easy to use across the board, whether you're a patient, whether you're a provider, whether you're a staff. And I believe we're going to get there in ways that I can't even predict today. And I think the real point here is it, this has to come from clinicians, from physicians, from nurses, from health systems driving this and not from different angles. I, I think we have to be deeply engaged in how this is going to go in order to make sure in those five years, the dream of better patient care, lower costs, simplicity, usability, all of those things come true. So that would be my thinking on that. Yeah. Fantastic. Two minutes or less, Brent. Yeah. I'm going to actually build on what Michael just said. I think if you think about the Star Trek analogy of a computer do X, Y, Z, or give me whatever. And you compare that as one of the spectrum to where we are today in healthcare. I think we're going to be closer. We're not going to be there in five years, I don't think, but I think we're going to be closer to that Star Trek type model five years from now than we're closer than being closer to where we are now. I think we'll be on the other side of that spectrum, if you will, in five years. And Chris, last word, I, I hate to confine you to two minutes, but what have you got? Of course. Well, I'm going to start with something Dr. Pfeffer said earlier, which is we've been digitizing the medical record for 20 years, but in many ways, the promise of health informatics and the electronic health record is largely unfulfilled. In fact, just the opposite. It's contributing to burnout with the doctors spending time after hours in their pajamas completing documentation. And so as I look out the next, let's say, uh, one to three years, I'm cautiously optimistic. We really need to take a rigorous approach and measure outcomes, integrate things in workflow, and make sure that these tools have the intended consequence. But as we look out five to 10 years, I, I'm incredibly bullish. In fact, uh, as Brent said, I, I look forward to the, the Star Trek computer being my uh, co-pilot. And in fact, I think we're going to look back at the introduction of generative AI in healthcare as a huge milestone, as big as the introduction of penicillin. So generative AI and these tools uh, applied to our healthcare data are going to revolutionize the way that we deliver healthcare. Fantastic. I want to thank the three panelists. Again, thanks everybody for being a part of it. And that's all for today. I love the chance to have these conversations. I think if I were a CIO today, I would have every team member listen to a show like this one. I believe it's conference level value every week. If you want to support This Week Health, tell someone about our channels. That would really benefit us. We have a mission of getting our content into as many hands as possible. And if you're listening to it, hopefully you find value. And if you could tell somebody else about it, it helps us to achieve our mission. We have two channels. We have the conference channel, which you're listening to, and This Week Health Newsroom. Check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. We want to thank our keynote partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix, who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.